The principal overseer of government operations and budget execution also has to go to Congress each year for its own appropriation. The Government Accountability Office uses the savings it's caused throughout government as its own justification. For 2023, GAO is asking for $810 million, a nearly 13 percent increase from what it received for the current fiscal year. For more, we turn to the GAO's Chief Operating Officer, Oris Williams-Brown. Ms. Brown, good to have you back. Good morning. Great to be back. Let's begin with some of the facts that GAO cites in its budget request, namely what it is that the government has saved in the past year and over the years as a result of the work that you do. So in terms of our savings since 2002, GAO's work has resulted in over $1.2 trillion in financial benefits. So in fiscal year 2021 alone, our work resulted in about $66.2 billion in financial benefits for a return on investment of 93 to 1. And that's against our five-year average return on investment of $158 to 1. All right. That seems like a pretty good return on investment. And tell us about the annual request you have for 2023. What are some of the details there underneath that top line figure that are noteworthy? So in terms of our priorities for fiscal year 2023, this budget request is intended to continue to allow GAO to meet the growing needs of the Congress for oversight, insight, and foresight of federal programs, agencies, and activities across the federal government. In terms of our top priorities, they include continuing to grow our capabilities in science and technology, cybersecurity, national security issues, and healthcare spending. Internally, we also want to continue our IT modernization efforts to ensure that we have the technology that we need to support the workforce of the future. And just getting back to some of those priorities for a moment, when you look at healthcare spending and cybersecurity, those in particular have the potential to really get the government into a lot of trouble if unchecked and maybe they already are by some people's reckoning. Fair to say? Absolutely. Those tend to be kind of big ticket items in government. And talk more about the science and technology development. This has been a priority for several years for GAO. We have been doing work in the science and technology space for several decades now. And I think it was around 2019, we formalized our effort to stand up our science, technology assessment, and analytics team, and that also includes our innovation lab. So GAOs recognize that science and technology is ubiquitous with public policy. So in order for us to carry out our public policy oversight responsibilities, we also must have and continue to have a strong presence in the science and technology space. Got it. And let's talk about then for all of these priorities, science and technology, cyber, national security, healthcare spending, the personnel and human capital requirements that you anticipate in the coming year. Our budget requests will allow us to continue to grow our expertise in these areas. So we plan to continue to hire in FY 2023, while much of our hiring really happens at the entry level into our professional development program. We use this program to really staff our areas across the agency. But with that said, we will also hire specialists. This will include hiring scientists, cybersecurity specialists, public policy experts, national security specialists, among a number of others. 
We're speaking with Oris Williams-Brown. She's chief operating officer at the Government Accountability Office. And I've often wondered, do people come to GAO from elsewhere, say, in the executive branch, moving over to the congressional branch? How often does that happen, where people can find out what it's like from your standpoint? So it happens sometimes. We have some movement across government. We also hire folks directly from grad school and other positions. So it does happen sometimes that people will move over from the executive branch into GAO. But it's not the bulk of the people. I would say no. And with respect to those that come not from the executive branch, everybody else, how much of your hiring tends to be people at mid or senior career levels, say, coming from industry or other domains versus those that are just out of college? I would say it's a mix. We have some folks that are mid-career transfers into the government. Sometimes the mid-career shift happens when they go back to graduate school and then they come to jail from graduate school, but they still have rich professional backgrounds. And we do hire at some mid-career hires into GAO as well. So it really is a mix, but I would say the majority probably do come to GAO from grad school, even if they have professional experience before going to grad school. And people tend to stay a long time, don't they? They do. I've been with GAO for over 30 years. Wow. And how has it changed from your standpoint? One thing about GAO, and I think we highlighted this as we celebrated our 100th anniversary last year, we've continued to evolve as an organization. So I think we have continued to work hard to continue to be responsive to the needs of the Congress and continue to evolve the types of work that we're able to do and the services that we're able to provide to the Congress. And looking at the summary of resources by program that you have submitted to Congress for 21 through 23, and again, that increase, most of GAO's budget, especially when compared to the average agency in the executive branch, it is basically people costs. You don't have giant acquisitions, and you don't have grant making. Yes. GAO is a service organization, so by far our biggest investment, it is in our people. And just the qualitative aspect of the people that you have, the requests for oversight and looking at programs generally and mostly originate with members of Congress. And GAO has been really stellar at avoiding any kind of sense that it's one side or the other with respect to politics, especially when you've got about 50-50 roughly in both houses of Congress. That's a quality I think that GAO tries to card very assiduously. Absolutely. We work hard to do that. We take very seriously the fact that we are an independent, nonpartisan agency within the legislative branch. And one of the key ways we do this is when we receive requests from chairs and ranking members of committees, for example, we treat them the same. So a chair and a ranking member both are prioritized the same way in terms of us undertaking what they're asking us to do. And to be practical, it does toggle back and forth quite often. It does. And a final question on IT modernization. That's uh, one of the things specifically cited in the request. Tell us what your plans are there. So we are going to continue to execute our IT modernization plan. And this basically is a multi-phase strategy that would shift a majority of our IT operations to cloud computing. 
This will enable us to take advantage of enhanced capabilities through an on-demand infrastructure and allow us greater access to innovative technology that's provided by cloud vendors. So one of the key components of this is for us to continue to implement an enterprise content management system, which will replace our legacy technology. Got it. So no more typing pools for those reports, huh? (laughs) Well, we don't have typing pools, but I think the technology that we currently use in terms of, you know, managing our data assets definitely needs to be modernized so we can leverage that information more efficiently across the agency. All right. Oris Williams-Brown is Chief Operating Officer of the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the GAO's request at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? 
I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 